find ourselves today. And if you're a guest with us, um, thank you for coming and giving your Sunday morning with us. And we take books of the Bible because we believe the Bible is God's word and we just plug through it. So that allows God to dictate to us kind of what comes our way. We teach what is in his word. And so in this season of our life at Treasuring Christ Church, we are in the book of Ephesians. And so we are, um, find ourselves now in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 13. So that's uh, where we are today, and I will read it, and then I will pray uh, for us, and we'll dive right in. So we're using the English Standard Version. Hopefully that will help you. And let me read verses 1 through 13, and then I'll pray. The Word of God says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, that is good news, Of this good news or gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask in this moment you would grant a powerful awareness and experience of your Holy Spirit. For we know when we experience his power what happens is we taste and see that you are good a love for Christ broadens and grows we know that your fruit begins to blossom in our lives and we have more characteristics of joy and love and peace and self-control and faithfulness and gentleness and than we've ever had before father so please have mercy on us By coming now in power, both upon me and upon us all. So that you are seen and adored and loved and treasured and worshipped and followed and obeyed and prayed to and given away. Father, come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We need good news sometimes, don't we? Yes, we do. (laughs) Okay, we started out very dialogue-oriented, and that was just a train wreck. Okay, let's try this again. We do need good news, amen? Okay, well, you're in the right place. Okay, so we need good news. Now, April the 15th, for some, represents good news. Tax day, right? It means that you're going to get a refund, and you're excited about that. doesn't mean that for me, but it might mean that for others. 
And so you celebrate tax day. Others, it, it means the opposite. And so it's a day of lament. And for others, it's a day of panic because you haven't done them yet. So whatever it is for you, if it's good news, keep that in your mind. What about when you've lost your keys? Have you ever had that moment? Yes, you have. Your, your, your world is in a panic. You've had to reorient your life to try to figure out how you get into your home, how you get into your car, whatever set of keys you lost. And then when you find them, glory of glories, there's some shouting going on, and I guarantee you somebody else knows. Because you're thankful. You're happy. What about when you go to the doctor? And you are afraid. You didn't know what the verdict was going to be. And you show up. And this isn't always the case, but it is in this situation. And they look at you and they say, you're okay. You're healthy. And when that happens, there's a sense of jubilation, right? Now, many times this doesn't have to be a thought out thing, but you have a plan what happens next, right? You're going to immediately call or text those that you want to tell that news, I didn't, the doctor didn't have to tell you or script that out for you. You just are going to do that. You're going to, in some cases, you might put it on social media, like, listen to what has happened. You're going to share good news. And this is exactly what Paul is describing. Good news has come. Good news has come that sinners who should be completely estranged from God for eternity, there's a way. A way that you can be reconciled to God, made at peace with Him, sins forgiven, you made new. You are not being leaned on for your own righteousness, but you are putting all your hope upon the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, who stood in your place, died the death that you deserve, who is now alive. Easter's come early, by the way. It's every single week here at TCC. And we celebrate that He is alive. That is remarkably good news. And that good news, he has designed to be told. And there is one medium through which that news is to be proclaimed. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the good news of God's multifaceted wisdom, the unsearchable riches of His glory is meant to be broadcast in prime time through us, the church. And so Paul has said, in this passage today, he is laying out for us that he has revealed his glorious wisdom to us in Christ Jesus, and that multifaceted, multicolored wisdom is broadcast through the church. This is the main idea of today. God's wisdom is revealed in Christ. That is the good news, and it is broadcast through the church. So that's two main ideas. First of all, wisdom revealed in Christ. Second of all, broadcast through the church, and we'll talk about how he lays these things out for us. So first of all, wisdom is revealed in Christ. This is God's wisdom, and it encompasses verses 1 to 6. Wisdom revealed in Christ. And we begin here, for this reason. What's the reason? He's already told us. The glories of God have come in Christ Jesus. He's on the scene, and he has broken down what has historically been a dividing wall, the law dividing Jews and Gentiles. He has broken down the hostility that is represented there. He's broken that down, and he's made in Christ one new man, one new humanity, one new people, one Christ, one new humanity of all peoples. This is what has happened in Ephesians chapter 2. And so he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then there's an aside. And this passage is not, or this sentence, this sentiment is not picked back up until verse 14. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees. 
So what Paul is doing is because Christ has come and he has made opposing individuals one new man in Christ, all nations, one shepherd, one flock, because he has done that, Christ is our peace. I want to pray. That's Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14. I want to pray that they are strengthened and that they are brought together and that their faith abounds and that their love grows and that will happen if they are able to comprehend understand the breadth and the width and the depth of the love of God. That's the sermon for two weeks from now, not today. Instead, that's the idea. Jesus has done this, and it leads me to pray that he would continue to do it, and right in the middle of that is today's sermon. And in the middle of that, he takes an aside. He kind of moves over here, and he talks about something. And here we begin to see how he talks about the wisdom of God revealed in Christ Jesus. Look at verses 2 through 6. He's saying, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Oh, wait. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Now, you have to understand, Paul has been historically, and even by the Ephesian church, he has been accused of being inauthentic, or of lying about being an apostle. If you're an apostle, you wouldn't be in prison. If you were an apostle, why would you be boasting of yourself? And he's like, no, 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 I'm not boasting of myself. It's by the grace of God I am what I am. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that's been poured out upon me. Look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That is, on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, strikes him blind, and helps him to understand, see with spiritual eyes, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one to take away the sins of humanity, and he is the one that Paul should proclaim, not just to the Jews, he should proclaim primarily to all peoples, the Gentiles. That was Paul's calling. And so he says, how the mystery was made known to me briefly, or by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, most commentators believe this is a previous letter written to the Ephesian church by Paul that we have zero record of. That happened also to the church in Corinth. That there's probably three letters written to the church in Corinth, not the two that we have. This happens. God, in his miraculous, glorious providence, has preserved Holy Scripture for us. We have what we need. But here's what he says, as I have written briefly, meaning I've mentioned this briefly, this revelation brought to me by God, I've mentioned that briefly to you, but now look at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, there's some debate on what the this is. Is the this the previous letter that was written, or is the this what he's writing currently right now? And we're not really sure. I lean more towards that he is talking about what he has written right now. What is laying there before them. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And here's a crucial lesson for all of us. Insight into Jesus comes through reading. Now, Some of you, you love to read. And others of you, you hate to read. You know, it's this, you have the people that read the books before the movie comes out. And then they talk about how bad the movie is because it was not close to the book. And then you have the movie lovers who say, I don't care what the book said. I want to watch the movie. And they sit there and they love the movie and it was great. And then you just debate back and forth which one you should be. And that's okay. You can do that. But here's one thing I know. It says in this passage later on that God is the creator of all things. That's found in verse 9. God, the creator of all things. Which means he can do all things. And if he had desired to communicate his word in video, 
he would have done it. Instead, he communicated it in writing. And therefore, the primary means by which we know Christ is not first through the movie, not even first through our dialogue with each other, not even first through a sermon, but as we read His precious Word. He has designed it that we are to read to gain insight. And so this is the privilege we have. Don't view it as this is one more rule. This is one more opportunity is what it is. It's the God of the universe inviting you into a conversation with him, a listening, a receiving his letter from him to us that we might gain insight into the mysteries, the glories of Jesus Christ. Insight comes through reading. What is the insight that Paul wants them to receive? It is the mystery of Christ. Now this mystery, verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. As Pastor Travis mentioned last time, those apostles are those who walked with Jesus and saw Jesus. The twelve apostles and the prophets were the New Testament prophets, more than likely, who were given prophetic words to speak for the edification of the church. It's now been revealed to them this mystery. This mystery. Mystery revealed is amazing. I don't know if you've ever been to an escape room, but they're fun. Now, it might not be for the claustrophobic of soul because the premise is they take you in a group and they lock you in a room, okay? So just that idea that might make you not want to be a part. But if you can move past that, it's a lot of fun. So, and yes, you actually do pay for this experience. It sounds a lot like torture. So they lock you in a room and you have to get out. Now, escape rooms are fun because it's for those who like kind of the private investigator motif, you know, you've got to kind of search out certain things. And so when you're in this room, it's, it's set up with different themes and they have a whole theme that carries you through this escape room and you're in there with a group and now you're supposed to kind of find and look for clues and those clues lead to other clues and the whole goal is that it'll give you a code that you're able to type in in order for you to break out of the room and escape. And there's a monitor that's up here that's meant to help you and, you know, I've been at a couple of these, and that monitor is, it just depends on who's behind the monitor, right? So that monitor either doesn't do much for you at all, or they, like, give away the farm. They're, like, watching you. It's like, you're so pathetic, I have to give you some more clues. And so they just keep, and then when they give a reveal on the screen, it's like, sweet, that's it. And it unlocks the door, and all of a sudden you kind of go to and do something else, and you're finding some more stuff, all in hopes that you'll break free of, of the room all together. Now, Whenever, if you've, there's, there's a clock in this gig, right? So like, you can't just do this forever. And so this clock is counting down and so the anticipation is rising and you're just hoping and there's this pressure and that you're ready and, and when you break free, there's a sense of celebration and you, you talk about this story for months and years to come if you make it out. Some people don't, shame on you. But no, that's a different issue. When the mystery is revealed, it's exciting. There's this sense of, I got it. I know what it is. I'm out. And this is exactly what Paul is alluding to here. There's been a mystery. A mystery to the Jewish people. Now, in one sense it was a mystery, in other senses it wasn't. Because there was a, a remnant, a group of Jewish individuals who were clear in understanding that a Messiah was to come and he was going to suffer and that he was going to be so glorious that he was not just going to do a work among the Jews, but he was going to do a work among the Gentiles. All of that is written in Holy Scripture in what we call the Old Testament. However, there were several things at work. Some, because of the Jews' disobedience, there was a hardness of heart. There was a veil. There was a, a, a closing and not being able to see through. But no matter where you were in your spiritual journey, you did not know this. You didn't know the name of that Messiah and you didn't know when he was going to come 
And you only knew the generalities. You did not know the specifics of what would happen when he showed up on the scene. It was a mystery. It was unknown. It was a mystery that led to great anticipation. And this is what 1 Peter talks about. In 1 Peter chapter 1, you hear this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. These are Old Testament prophets who are longing for the Messiah to come. They were inquiring about a few things. One, who is this person? We know him as the Messiah, but who is he? What's his name? How will we know he's here? And two, they're inquiring about the time. When is he going to show up on the scene? And there's this anticipation. When is it going to come that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory? So the Old Testament told of the sufferings of Christ and the coming glories of the Messiah, but they didn't know the person in time. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, these Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves, But you, church, Peter says, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. Preach the good news to you who by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Just track. Thousands of years. Longing upon longing. Anticipation upon anticipation. For this coming moment. And yet Peter says. That moment is now here. It's Jesus. He has come. He has shown up. He has come to save individuals from their sin. He has died. He has raised from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit has come. He is dwelling inside of us. And that is so glorious and so remarkable angels long to look into that and we treat it as if it was old hat. I've been pleading this week for God to do in my heart a work of anticipation, a fresh work of joy as we consider Easter this week. Because it is so easy to not see our salvation as this remarkably glorious that the angels are longing to look into it. That he would come and he would make us who should have no access to him at all and we have unfettered access because of Jesus Christ. And we not only have access, we have him working for us and in us. Grace upon grace. Amen. And so he says, this mystery was not known, but it has now been revealed. And that mystery, the glories of Jesus Christ, is not just a mono-ethnic glory. It is a multi-ethnic glory because here's the mystery. It's that there's many people, one flock. Look at it, verse 6. The mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. There's not two heavens. We're all going to be there together. We're all going to be there around the throne of God. Together. He says we're fellow heirs. Members of the same body. We're all meant to be one. And partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The promises are ours. Not just one group's. They're ours because of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. And they didn't know it fully. And now Jesus is on the scene, in the flesh. The person is known. The time is known. And how he would do it on a Roman cross and raised from a tomb. That is known. But the apostles were like us. They were kind of ignorant of what was going on. And we see that throughout the New Testament. Look at John 10. John 10 verse 16 says this, Jesus has to tell them, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Obviously this is before he died and rose from the dead, but he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's the mystery. One flock, one shepherd. The Jews are like, whoa, blowing my mind. We were the people of God. No, 
anyone by faith in Jesus are the people of God. One flock, one shepherd. He had to tell them because they had a thick skull. They were struggling to understand. That's why the Great Commission goes out. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go and make disciples of all the nations. He's telling that to his apostles because they were struggling to understand it. The mystery now revealed and them sent out to proclaim the mystery. This is what happens in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, my proclaimers of this mystery in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here's what happened. They received the Holy Spirit and they stayed put. Such that what we hear in Acts, the only thing that would send them out was suffering. And so Acts chapter 8 is brought to us and listen to verses 1 through 4. And Saul, that is Paul, that is the writer of this very letter that we are studying approved of Stephen's execution, a devout follower of Jesus, because that happened before the revelation that he speaks about in this passage, before his eyes were opened. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation, weeping over him. But Saul was relentless. He was ravaging the church, going house to house, dragging men and women off and imprisoning them because of their commitment to Jesus. The mystery was not revealed to him. But look what happened. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were not preaching the glorious mysteries of Jesus to the lost people around them, and so God in his kindness brought suffering. Because his glory will go to the ends of the earth, and he must be proclaimed. The mystery is now revealed in Christ Jesus. And it is meant to be a part of our glorious proclamation that Jews and Gentiles, all peoples by faith in Jesus, fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, the second idea is this. God's multifaceted wisdom, this glorious gospel, this mystery revealed is broadcast through the church. And so he says, this is verses 7 through 13, verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now he, in some senses, is flopping back up to verse 1 where he says, I was a prisoner. I was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Here he's like, I'm a minister to the Gentiles. Why is he stating this? Because, once again, they were saying he was not authentic. He was not an apostle to the Jews, or to the Gentiles, as he was saying he was. And they thought it was arrogant that he would even state that, and so he says, no, I'm a minister to the Gentiles. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles by the grace of God. It is by the grace of God that I am what I am. He even goes on to say, look at verse 8, I'm the very least of all the saints. Now part of that is because he knew what I just read. That is his story. His story of Acts 8. Where he was a persecutor of the church. But it is also a current understanding that I in my sinfulness apart from Jesus, I am the least of these. I need Christ. It is an awareness of God's grace in his life and his need for grace. And he is saying, God has made me a minister of, a servant of the gospel to the Gentiles. It is by God's grace. It is all about him. It is not about me. That's what he's saying. Now, 
my kids love to play Xbox, and I have a child that yesterday was playing NBA 2K. Now, for many of you, you don't care, and you don't know what that is. Now, NBA is basketball. So he was playing basketball. Now, in this basketball video game, he can create his own character. So creates his character, and he plays a game. After you win the game, you are taken through the simulation of like a press conference. And so at the end of the game, you're in a press conference, and you are given options on what you're going to say to the question being asked to you. And so the announcer comes up on there and says, you really had a good game, you know, and I think if you keep this up, you're going to be MVP. What do you think about that? And then you have to choose A, B, or C. And I'm watching my son while I'm doing dishes back here, and I couldn't help myself. And I said, son, don't make it about you. Look for something about the team. Now, deep down, what I really wanted in that moment was an option D that said, Jesus is my everything. He's the reason that I was playing this game so well. But I I figured out that was probably not going to be an option. So I went, don't make it about you. Look for anything that says something about the team. So my little son is reading through that, and I'm waiting because I couldn't read it from that far away. And all of a sudden, I, I listen to what he says. And yeah, it's really not about me. It's about the team. And I'm really glad that I got to play as a part of the team. You know, I was just like, yeah, good job, buddy. Okay, Discipleship 101. Don't make it about you. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You're disqualifying me because you think I'm making it about me. No, God did this. It's all by his grace. There's no reason why he should have chosen me, but he did. It's by his grace that I am what I am. He says, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, verse 8, this grace was given. God did that. He invaded the heart. He made that happen. And what Paul wants us to see here also is this. Whatever God has called you to, he will equip you for. Whatever God has called you to, he will equip you for. One quote was this from a man named Harold Herner. He was a a commentator that I read. He says, God does not give you responsibility without provision. God does not give you responsibility without provision. Whatever he has asked you to do and to be responsible for, he will provide for you. He might have called you to be a student, to find a job, to do a job, to be a brother or a sister, to be a son or a daughter, to be a parent. He's called you to be a spouse for some of you. He's called you to be a friend. He's called you to be a church member. He's called you to be a gospel proclaimer. Whatever he has called you to do, he will equip you for. Paul was called to be a gospel minister to the Gentiles, and it was by the grace of God that he was not only given that opportunity, but he will be provided for. And so we must, we must, we must, we must be able to say, God, I trust you to give me the grace to do what you've called me to do. Some of you might say, but I feel too weak. I feel too weak to do this. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm too tired. I'm too sad. I'm too unable. I'm too ill-equipped. Somebody else is better. And yet he says, in his mysterious providence you know it's not an accident my plan a not my plan b is that this goes through my church not just through some in the church through the church that means if you're a follower of jesus you're a part of that plan that's not his plan b you're not plan b you're plan a and yes you're messed up so am i yes you're weak so am i The point is, he is not, and that's enough. He's not. He's sufficient. He's sufficient. 
You might not feel able, but what he has called you to do, he will provide for you. He will give you the grace to do what he has asked you to do. And he will use you, sinful, broken, messed up, straying, selfish as you and I are. And he will spread his gospel and build his church. That's what he does. And so God's multifaceted wisdom is broadcast through the church, but it's broadcast through the church by his grace, by his help. But it's also broadcast through the church by proclamation. That is, speaking. We must be a speaking people. Paul says this, look at it. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to do two things. If you see it, you'll see it. Now, this is an English lesson. I'm so sorry. You see an infinitive. To preach and to bring. It's meant to show you that there's grace. There's God's help here to do two things. To, what's it say? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, here's the deal. Paul is unique and he is an example for us to follow. He's unique in that he was uniquely called as the frontier front runner of gospel proclamation and church planting to the Gentiles. Now, that's unique to him. It's unique to him that he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and was struck blind. That's unique to him. He's unique. He's an apostle. He writes scripture. We don't, okay? That's just not how that rolls. So there's a uniqueness to Paul. And it is unique in the sense that he is a unique person in history to proclaim the reveal of this mystery, the reveal of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. However, he's an example. He's an example for us to follow because Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus also says, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Now go and make disciples. You and I are to be proclaimers. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we are ambassadors. We are gospel takers. That's who we are. So in this sense, when Paul says, I'm coming to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ is also a beckoning of us to call and to preach, to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, this word, unsearchable riches, is found in Romans 11. It's only found here and in Romans 11, verse 33, which says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, there's your word, are his judgment and how inscrutable are his ways. The phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ, literally could be sermons to preach for the rest of our existence. You really could just have one sermon series from here on out. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And then you just go at it. Because you'll never exhaust the glorious riches of Jesus. That's the point. Unsearchable. You won't, it's not that you shouldn't search it, it's that you won't be able to exhaust it. And I just want to lay this out here, because I was one of these individuals in college. The epitome of immaturity and arrogance is taking any aspect of God or any passage of Scripture and saying, I know that already. To say, I've already got that, I don't need to keep searching, is to say this passage is not true. This passage says, the riches of Christ are unsearchable. That's what we get to be a part of until we see him in glory is searching and searching and searching and reading and talking and discussing and sharing and hearing and benefiting from now in a shadow and then forever when we see him face to face and glory is revealed. That is what we are called to. And to say that we've got it all is to, like, is to say that I understand all the ocean because you've dipped your toes on Wilmington Beach. 
You've dipped your toes on the coastline in Wilmington. You don't know Wilmington's history. You don't know its tide cycles. You don't know anything. You're just saying, I got it all because my toes are in the water. Let alone you don't know the East Coast and you don't know the West Coast and you don't know the coast of Africa and the coast of China and the coast of India. Let alone the depths that no human has ever touched that were just created to give God glory. That is how silly it is to say, I've got this. I don't need to mine him. No, we mine the depths of the glories of Jesus Christ as long as he gives us breath. And so Paul says, my aim, my calling that Jesus has given me and equipped me for by his grace is to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul is saying, this is what we are called to. We must be gospel proclaimers. And I just want to share with you, I feel remiss if I didn't. been feeling this for several weeks and this passage just comes out and it says it and it provides an opportunity for it and that I need to personally confess that in this past season of difficulty and trial I have been more fixed on the trial than I have gospel proclamation to lost people and God convicted me of that I don't believe I've been a good example to you in that. I proclaim Jesus to my kids. I proclaim Jesus to you. But what struck me was this. The nearness of God to me in the midst of my pain, and I know he's been near to many of you too. I'm not trying to elevate anything that I'm going through at all. Don't hear that. But the nearness of God to me in my trouble could have never made it without his nearness and God struck me how many people are going through this broken world without the nearness of God oh how we must be pricked and you know sometimes it's easy to share that you struggle with things once you've conquered it and you're way on the other side, and it's like, oh, I got this. Let me tell you about what happened like six months ago. Man, I was a train wreck, but now I'm great. That's not the story I'm bringing you. I'm bringing you one fellow traveler with another fellow traveler, saying, we need each other. We're in it together. But we can't let this word go and not prick our hearts to be gospel proclaimers to lost people. We can't. And I want to tell you something else. Something else is that Paul says, he says in this passage, I've been called to proclaim and to make the mysteries known so that, verse 10, so that through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God would be made known. Church, many of you have helped me in this struggle. I've got in my manuscript specific names of people who have helped me and encouraged me to share my faith. Not with your words, but with your example. I won't use names to protect the innocent, but there's a woman who I've seen pour into teenagers who are hurting and without Christ over and over consistently. And I see God working through her gospel proclamation and faithfulness. I've seen a man, a man in our church pour into teenagers, sacrificing his time and his energy, driving them all over this city because he wants the gospel to get to them and they don't know Christ. I've seen individuals gather for prayer that the gospel would go in this city to people who have never known Jesus and seek to arrange their living in such a way that they could be near unbelievers and proclaim the gospel. I know of a woman in our church who needed money for her family. So her family decided that she was going to get to work, but she chose part of where she would work so that she could interact with unbelievers and take the gospel to them. I've talked with parents, many of you, 
who have sat there and talked about how you are trying to get Jesus to your children, not just a good education, not just good social skills, but you're wanting to get them Jesus. And to you, I say thank you. Because it's through the church that the multifaceted wisdom of God is meant to be communicated. You've displayed that to me and you've encouraged me. And I encourage you that the church must proclaim the wisdom of God. And they must do it not only in what they say, but how they live. That's the last piece here. He talks about here, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known. Do you know what that means? Multifaceted. That word is the same word that's used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. It's a multicolored wisdom. It's like it wants you to look at like a, a prism and all the colors that shoot in and out of it and think that's God's wisdom. It is so diverse. It is so glorious. How will the church proclaim the wisdom of God? It is by the grace of God. It is by proclaiming the glories of God. And it is by being a church that reflects the multicolored wisdom of God. In this context, it necessarily means that the church must intentionally proclaim the gospel to lost people across ethnic lines so that we show to the world we are one flock with one shepherd. It must be intentional. It's like the car on a hill in neutral. It will go backwards. It will not conquer the hill. It will not come natural for cultural lines to be crossed and diverse cultures to be brought together in one people. You stay in neutral without intentionality, the hill of multi-ethnicity is steep and you will roll all the way down and hear this loud and clear. It is so that the multifaceted wisdom of God is known. What does that mean in our context? Well, Here's something you need to know. Even though it says multicolored, like Joseph's coat of many colors, it leans in on multi-ethnicity. Ethnicity is more than just the color of the skin. Ethnicity is expression and language and music and art and history and clothing and leisure and food. It is all about the totality of the individual. And these things are tempted to divide us and separate us. And so, he is speaking here that this one new man is a not culture blindness, but is a, a bringing together multiple cultures and what is binding us is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is binding us. And so let me tell you what it looks like in Rwanda. It doesn't look like the color of your skin. It's the Hutus and the Tutsis coming together. Warring people who didn't like each other for generations. Who have a history of hatred. And the gospel bridging that gap. And having a church where there are Hutus and Tutsis worshiping together. And that says God is gloriously wise. It's Turkey. That's not black and white in Turkey. It's Kurds and Turks in Turkey. Warring individuals who look a little different but also a little similar. That's multi-ethnicity. That is what will happen when the gospel is proclaimed. A church is birthed among Turks and over time they cannot be indifferent to their Kurdish neighbors. They've got to proclaim the gospel to them and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so what about here? We are uniquely placed in an area that has historic and current racial tension primarily between black and white and some Hispanic. So that's why we seek to bridge those gaps. It's not that certain ethnicities are more important than another. Not at all. Instead, 
If we were to plant the church in Morrisville, it would be emphasizing more than likely a multi-ethnicity that really hones in on an Indian culture that is primarily covering that community. However, hear this. Just because we are seeking to love our current community, we are going to be not first looking at ethnicity, but looking for gospel sharing, and we are going to share Christ. This is called neighbor love is what it is. Neighbor love must cross cultures because in Christ there's one new man being created. One new people. One shepherd. One flock. And we are a people that are wanting to see Multiple cultures come together, not for that as an end, but for the multifaceted wisdom of God. So even on May the 5th, we're going to have a fellowship, Tastes of the World. And we want, wherever you're from, whatever, whether it could be a north and south distinction. It could be a sense of east coast, west coast distinction. It could be you're from India or China, or you could be different ethnicities and whatever makes a sense of cultural expression of home, you bring that meal and we're going to celebrate that our God is a God of all peoples. Even Pastor Hunter is going to preach and he's going to preach to a translator and our sermon will be in both English and Spanish. God is a God of all peoples. One flock, one shepherd. It's going to take intentionality, but it must begin with just a burden to reach lost people with the gospel. This is what Jesus has promised. That he is working towards that end for the glory of his name. And here's something that's pretty crazy. Do you know who the first people that need to hear this are? It's not you and I. It's the angels. We do this so that the angels would hear it. That's what it says. Be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The heavenly places... Where the angels reside. It's where the blessings are of Ephesians 1.3. It's also in Ephesians 6. It's where the spiritual warfare is happening. It's where Job mentions that Satan and God are talking. So it's the spiritual realm. And all that we are doing here is meant to be something that is known to them. Now I'll just be honest with you. I don't have a clue what that means. But I do know this. It's what the scripture says. That our unity, our gospel proclamation, our highlighting the grace of God over against ourselves is first a message that is going to hit the very realms of heaven and it's going to lead to more praise in the spiritual realm. And all of this was according to the eternal purpose of God. Verse 11. This is not just a new thing. This is the purpose that God has always brought. And Paul finishes with this sentence. In Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. How will the church broadcast the multifaceted wisdom of God? It'll be through suffering. It'll be through suffering. Don't lose heart over what I am suffering. Paul is trying to cut out a very ancient notion that if you are experiencing trial, it is solely owing to your personal sin. That's the exact thing that the disciples said in John chapter 9. Looking at a blind man. Who sinned? This man or his parents? You know what Jesus says? It was not this man nor his parents who sinned, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Did that mean those people were sinless? No. It's saying that the blindness was there so that the works of God might be seen. Trial comes so that God can be seen. Many times, yes, we can bring and suffer for unrighteousness, but there is a suffering for righteousness and not all suffering is attributed to personal sin. That is the satanic message of health, wealth, and prosperity. And it is satanic. Because that's how Satan interpreted Psalm 91 when he was talking to Jesus at the temptation. That if you throw yourself down, you're not going to get hurt. Jesus was like, 
the only way I can be faithful is to suffer. So I'm not going to throw myself down. Satan's design is to say what the health, wealth, prosperity people say. If you got enough faith, then you won't have trial. That's garbage. It's garbage. And it places a burden upon individuals that no one can bear. Because when you look at your trial, you think, I, I've got to fix it. I've got to fix myself. I just didn't have enough faith. I was just wasn't good enough. You suck the gospel right out of that moment. Instead, Paul is saying here, I'm not in prison and suffering because I lied to you about being an apostle. I am an apostle and I'm speaking the truth. I'm suffering for you. Isn't that what he says? So I ask you not to lose heart what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I'm following Jesus and I'm suffering. I'm in prison because I'm proclaiming the gospel. And in my gospel proclamation, it's got me in jail, but I'm proclaiming because I love you. He's under trial because of faithfulness. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. So I ask you not to lose heart, he says. Because I'm doing this because I love you. I figured by the time we got to this point in the sermon, we'd be all tired and exhausted. I didn't realize it would be this hot in this room. So I figured that that's making everybody triply tired, so I have a video and we're done. Right here. You see that orange thing? Anybody know what that's called? A buoy. Very good. Okay. We ask, why suffering? Why suffering? Why the waves seem to come and to cover over the buoy? But what happens? You can't see it. Where'd it go? And then, boom, pops right back up, right? We need buoyancy. We need to be, have buoy-type faith. How do, how do we keep popping up in the midst of our suffering? Where does that come from? Where does that come from that it just pops up like that right there? Where does that come from? It comes from this passage that we study and we know and we read and we reflect on and we proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ towards us and towards anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. And even though the waves come and they crash you and you feel like you're underwater, the Spirit of God brings you up. He shores you up. Without, Tim Keller says this, without suffering, we would be shallow. Like the Jordan River whose waters only come up to the ankles. Suffering protects us from being fragile and shallow, and they create a buoyancy about our faith. And so, friends, we have a great good news the wisdom of God revealed in Christ Jesus, and that is to be proclaimed through us by His grace as we proclaim with our mouths as we proclaim with our lives by fighting to be a multi-ethnic expression of his love and as we suffer for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, please, come. Come. Make us gospel proclaimers. Come. Help us in our suffering to not grow weary in doing good. Father, our suffering is the opportunity of this moment to say, I love you more than X. I love you more than anything. When everything is taken away, we are able to say, Christ, I still love you. You are my treasure. Father, that's the buoyancy we need. We believe. Help our unbelief. And so in this moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this Lord's Supper moment is just a prayer. It's a prayer for any believer. I believe, Father, help my unbelief. And use me. No excuses. He provides for what he requires. And just lay it out to him. 
my prayer has been for you and I both that this Lord's Supper table is a hands-up moment. Father, do with me what you wish. And what he has brought to mind over this time and through this passage, write it down. For you're not guaranteed to remember it if you've got a weak mind. You'll forget it. Write it down. What is he doing? But cast all the burden upon him and ask him to pour out grace that you can take one step of faith this week. The Lord's Supper is a declaration and a cry for grace. Grace to forgive us of our sins. Grace to give us strength when we are weak. Grace to comfort us. Grace to give us wisdom when we have no clue what to do. Christ has been revealed. He is our wisdom. God will provide for everything that we need. So the Lord's Supper is a declaration that we believe. And it's a cry that God would help our unbelief. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take of that supper because it's a declaration of what you declared at your baptism. I need Christ and I'm dead to sin and alive to Christ. But you can declare that in your seat right now that you cannot save yourself. You have been your own Lord and that has been miserable. You have not been able to satisfy or sustain and you are calling out right now in this moment and say, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to save me. You don't have to have it all figured out and you definitely shouldn't try to clean yourself up because you can't do that. But helpless as we all are, you say, I'm a sinner and I need grace to cover and to wash me clean. I believe that he died in my place and that he rose from the dead. Declare that, repent of your sin and trust in him that he might save you and make you new. And if you need to know more about that, anyone who gets up to take that Lord's Supper is a free candidate for you to go to them and to talk to them about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But in this moment, the wisdom of God has been revealed. The wonders of the gospel have been shown. Come, take of the Lord's Supper. Proclaim it by your taking and by your praying. Let's take of it together.